This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. everybody, and welcome back to Political Theater. We are less than a year away from the 2022 midterm elections. We've been keeping an eye out on vulnerable members, races to watch, and other dynamics and issues that are going to affect uh, what could be a very expensive and drawn-out election cycle. Uh, I discussed this on a recent Fiscal Note webinar with our politics team, uh, Bridget Bowman, Stephanie Aiken, and Kate Ackley. We talked about key House and Senate races, redistricting, fundraising, voting restrictions, uh, all kinds of issues that are going to go into the next year leading up to the uh, November elections in 2022. So uh, this uh, podcast is going to uh, be a an adapted uh, version of that webinar, and we hope you enjoy it. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for, for tuning in to today's webinar. Um, we are a little less than one year out, and that means that people are have already started making decisions about retirement, as we've seen this week already with Pat Leahy in the Senate, uh, and they're starting to spend a lot of money. We're going to get to a lot of these questions about who's vulnerable, uh, who is not so vulnerable, perhaps, uh, how expensive this is all going to get, probably, uh, and, uh, and, and a whole host of other issues. Uh, one note that uh, I'm, I'm, I'll talk to each one of our uh, our, our team uh, by subject matter, and uh, when I see a question pop up, if it's something that we uh, that that we can sort of uh, answer real quickly, we'll do that. If, however, I think that it will come up again, perhaps in a later conversation that I'm having or with Nathan and Herb, we might save it for later. So with that, we'll get started uh, with Bridget Bowman, uh, our senior politics reporter, who I've worked, had the pleasure of working with several years now uh, and talking a lot about Senate races. Bridget, let's talk about uh, who are the most vulnerable senators. We'll start with that and then we'll talk about some other races. But you wrote recently about the most vulnerable Senate uh, uh, senators that are that are running for re-election. Uh, who is at the top of the list? Sure. Uh, so at the top of our list is Georgia Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. Uh, Democrats actually dominated this list of vulnerable senators. Uh, there are six on the list. Four of them are Democrats. But to kind of give a little background, that doesn't mean that the Democratic majority is necessarily doomed. Um, our list of vulnerable incumbents doesn't look at open seats, and there are a number of open seats uh, that Republicans are defending that Democrats could flip. So the kind of thing to know about the battle of the Senate is that it's going to be very, very close. The Senate obviously evenly divided 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. So it is not an exaggeration to say that every race is going to matter. Um, so we, you know, our friends at Inside Elections, we look at their ratings. Uh, they've rated eight states as Senate battlegrounds. Six of them are the senators who are on this vulnerable senators list. And it also includes two open seats, one in Pennsylvania and one in North Carolina. And of those eight states, Biden actually won six of them in 2020, but five of them he won by two points or less. 
So the thing I heard over and over again, talking to campaign strategists in both parties over the last few weeks was that the battle for the Senate is gonna be very close. All of these races are expected to be very, very close. Um, so of the vulnerable senators list, six of them are Democrats, two are Republicans, but again, because of the open seats, it, just because this list is dominated by Democrats doesn't mean that Democrats are definitely gonna lose majority just means that these senators are going to face some tough races. Right. And we still are waiting uh, for some decisions uh, and that will affect these races. For instance, uh, the, Ron Johnson, uh, the Republican from Wisconsin, is has yet to announce his plans for re-election in 2022. And that, and that is, you know, he is a considered vulnerable. Uh, that will be a tight race regardless. As you mentioned, it's one of those race, uh, states that, that President Biden won. Uh, Trump won it in 2016. It's going to be tight, almost regardless of whether Johnson's on the ticket or not. That's right. And I mean, everybody's watching to see what Senator Johnson is going to do. He's recently said he'll probably have a decision in the next few weeks. But as, as I've been talking to Republicans in Wisconsin about him, the phrase that kind of keeps coming up is mixed signals. Uh, it's really tough to read what Johnson's going to end up doing. He, you know, he's fundraising at a pretty good pace, not as good as some of the other incumbents, but not so bad that it's a sign he's retiring. He's He did initially say he would, uh, when he initially ran, he set a term limit for himself, uh, but he's kind of walked that back, noting that he believes he is you know, a Republican who can keep this seat in Republican hands. Uh, but Democrats, there are Democrats in the state who believe that it might be easier for them to run against Ron Johnson than run against a more kind of establishment type Republican, given some of the controversial things Senator Johnson has said about the January 6th insurrection, about the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, but there's a crowded Democratic primary in that state as well, which is a theme we see in a number of other states, which is another new thing about Senate races this cycle as well. I mean, and one one thing I'd like to mention too is that uh, Marco Rubio is on this list as 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 vulnerable, and even with um, Donald Trump winning Florida, you know, like a, a, a fairly not a, I wouldn't say comfortable. You, you can never win comfortably at, uh, statewide in Florida, it seems. Um, but like Rubio is is not necessarily the most vulnerable looking, but then his one of his potential opponents, Val Demings, has been just re, re, you know raising boatloads of cash. Yes, she has. Uh, she raised over $8 million in the last quarter, which is on par with some of the blockbuster Senate Democratic fundraisers like Warnock, like Arizona's Mark Kelly. So that certainly caught a lot of attention, especially among Democrats. It seems like uh, Congresswoman Demings has really embraced online fundraising. She spent a lot as well. She spent a good money on Facebook, uh, which is kind of a broader shift that we've seen in campaigns, this recognition when it comes to online fundraising. They really need to spend money to raise money. And we see Demings doing that really effectively. Although Democrats do acknowledge, acknowledge that Florida is a really tough state for them to win statewide. It's very expensive. It's huge, has really expensive media markets. Um, and that's just one where Republicans have also made gains among Hispanic voters in Florida, which Democrats are gonna need to address to win statewide there as well. All right. Um... Let's move on to the House vulnerables now. Your colleague, Stephanie Aiken, uh, has, has talked about, has, has written about the House vulnerable list and also the different dynamics going on there. Uh, redistricting is one of them. So we still don't know uh, exactly how things are gonna look in some of the bigger states like California, uh, for instance. But Stephanie, let's 
Let's talk about the you you uh, you outlined very well. I thought uh, the the things that you're looking at the what would make members vulnerable in house races, uh, and those are specifically people who might be vulnerable depending on how redistricting comes out in their state. Uh, people who are vulnerable, no matter what, uh, no matter doesn't matter how the lines are drawn, they are going to face tough races. And then members who are also vulnerable in primaries. So let's start with one of my favorite topics: redistricting. Who are some of the folks uh, who you're watching? They're, you're watching their races because uh, the the way that the lines are drawn uh, has has put them in a in a vulnerable position running for re-election to the house. Well, you know, it's still really early in the redistricting process to say um, there's still a lot of states that have not finalized their maps. Um, but slowly things are starting to come online a little bit um, in the list that that we came up with. Um, we didn't do a ranking as we normally would at this point in the cycle, just because there is so much that's up in the air. Um, but, you know, we can say a lot about the general mood and the landscape going into 2020. 2022. Um, gosh, time flies. Um, I mean, you know, one of the things that we can say um, pretty um, confidently is that it's going to be a tough year for for Democrats. Um, you know, Democrats are coming in after having a a, a pretty tough night on election night on, in 2020. Um, they were expecting to pick up a, a lot of seats. Instead, they lost a net of 11, and Republicans only need to to pick up five seats, uh, flip five seats to to win majority in the House. So. Um, what we can say is um, that that probably when we do eventually do a, a ranking, we're going to see a lot of Democrats on that list. Um, the the districts where we we do know what the the contours of the districts are going to look like. Um, in some cases, we don't know who the opponent's going to be. So you know, like somebody like Cindy Axney is on there. Um, Iowa has finalized its its district lines. Um, she's a Democrat who, um, you know, she's somebody that um, Democrats would call, you know, one of their battle-tested incumbents. Um, she's got a, a big name in Iowa, but Iowa is a state where um, Joe Biden's favorability ratings are, are pretty low. Um, the climate there is going to be tough for Democrats. Um, she said that she's going to run again, um, but we don't know who her opponent's going to be. And that's the case in a lot of these Right. And one one of the, you know, sort of dynamics playing out we, we've seen, too, is that um, we always have some sort of um, member versus member, um, you know, uh, contest. And, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is a state where I used to reside in West Virginia, where uh, West Virginia lost a seat in redistricting. And we now have two members uh, who are running against one another, uh, Alex Mooney and uh, and uh, David McKinley. So regardless, uh, you know, th th that's an all Republican dele delegation. Republicans will lose at least one seat, at least one member through that. Yeah, that's going to be a fascinating race. And that's one that we knew going into the cycle that um, we were going to lose uh, one Republican member because it's a, it's a three member delegation. They lost a seat um, due to reapportionment. Um, but the member-on-member -member primary is also going to be interesting, too. As you mentioned, it's um, Congressman McKinley versus Congressman Mooney. On paper, um, Congressman McKinley um, in the last Congress um, voted more frequently with President Trump, uh, but President Trump came out yesterday and endorsed um, Mooney, and that all comes down to President Trump's opposition to um, President Biden's infrastructure bill and um, Congressman McKinley voted for that. And that's um, something that we'll probably see 
in a lot of primaries um, in more uh, districts with more moderate members um, where members have, have voted for infrastructure. Um, uh, going to be a big question whether that's going to put them on the hot seat with their primary voters. And in Illinois, uh, we're, we're seeing that there are, I mean, there, there's a map that the, you know, the Democrats can, you know, control the process there and they've, they're going to try to make it very difficult for their uh, Republican colleagues uh, in, in, uh, and sort of move as many seats as possible to the Democratic side. But they have a member on member fight too uh, in the Chicago area between Marie Newman and Sean Kasten. Yeah, at least one. I mean, there could be more, um, but we know about that one so far. Um, and that's that's going to be an interesting one to watch, too. Uh, Marie Newman's district, um, she uh, decided not to, to run again when she got drawn into a district that um, was heavily Latino, and she was going to have to go up against a Latino member. Um, and she decided instead that she was going to challenge another fellow Democrat, Sean Kasten. Um, he's somebody who has been more moderate. She um, ousted a, a, one of the most conservative Democrats in the House, um, Dan Lipinski, yeah. progressive Dan Lipinski. Um, so uh, it, it's going to be interesting to watch who who comes out ahead there and who gets the support of um, the, the party apparatus. Um, Marie Newman already has an endorsement from Emily's list, which um, is something that does come with a lot of outside support. And and then let's let's pivot to some of the members who we know are going to have a tough race regardless. Um, th th these are folks where, you know, the, the lines aren't necessarily uh, fixed yet or the lines are drawn and they're still in for a tough race. And if, if, so far, we have basically just all Democrats on that list. Yeah, I mean, and part of that is because of what we know so, so far with the states um, where they're at in their redistricting process. So a lot of the states that um, you know, have come online a little bit more with redistricting our states where there are Democratic targets. But it is true that on the whole, we're looking at a lot more Democrats who are going to have to do more to defend their keys this cycle. Um, but some of the states where we're seeing Democrats who we know are going to be in trouble no matter what, um, Virginia, um, we've got two Democrats on there, Elaine Luria and Abigail Sandberger, both moderate Democrats who um, Democrats see as very strong incumbents. They have um, weathered tough races before, um, but they're in districts that Democrats have flipped in recent cycles because they've pulled in a lot of suburban voters who have um, in, the, in the last two cycles have really turned on the GOP under former President Trump. But we saw in the Virginia um, gubernatorial and uh, down ballot races a couple of weeks ago that a lot of those voters are going back and voting for the GOP and, and turning out in pretty high numbers. So it's a really open question um, what those voters are going to do in 2022 and if they're going to come around. Um, a lot of that has to do um, with how well Democrats can sell um, their work pushing through President Biden's agenda and the infrastructure bill, which just passed, and what's going to happen with the rest of those big social spending tax um, and priorities of, of the Obama administration. Or did I say Obama? <laughs> oh, um, Biden. And then, and then finally, we've got some members who are um, vulnerable just by dint of their their own primary challenges. And uh, and really, a, a lot of this comes down to the, that they have run afoul of uh, former President Trump. 
and uh, and they are being targeted from you know by by colleagues. That includes uh, Liz Cheney, uh, who is you know is is perhaps the uh, you know bet noir uh, of of the Trump resistance in in the GOP. Uh, I mean, she's been singled out. Her she's got problems with the even the Wyoming State Party. Uh, and then Tom Rice of South Carolina, who, who voted to impeach also. So they, they have some tough races in, in primaries and they may not be alone. Yeah, um, that's a group that for once is um, for us, our, our purposes, we're mainly looking at Republicans there. And that's a difference from what we've seen in previous cycles where we were really watching Democrats who were facing um, incumbent Democrats who were facing primary challenges from more um, progressive um, opponents. Um, this cycle, the appetite for that seems to have waned a little bit as Democrats are really struggling to um, to promote President Biden's agenda um, and you know various things that are going on in Congress. So that doesn't seem to be as much of a threat. But on the Republican side, um, we're really going to see a lot of battles play out um, in these districts where um, Republicans voted to impeach Biden. There are ten of them. Um, but again, uh, that's kind of an open question there, too, um, because all of those members are outraising their opponents. Um, and, you know, they have um, pretty big advantages as incumbents. Um, their opponents, a lot of them um, don't have a lot of political experience. And um, it's kind of yet to be seen how um, how strong their campaigns are going to be. Um, Tom Rice um, is one that's kind of interesting, too. Um, he, we put him on the list because. Um, the way that the um, South Carolina primaries are structured, he's going to have to clear 50% of the, the, the votes to, to win that primary, which is going to be kind of a, a difficult threshold. It's, it's going to be a crowded primary. Um, some of the other members who, who voted for impeachment don't have that hurdle. So that's one of the reasons why he's on there and they're not. Interesting. Well, thanks, Stephanie. Um, and speaking of expensive, uh, we're going to talk to Kate Ackley now about some of the money that is flowing into this midterm election. Um, Kate, you, uh, you you kicked off kind of our year out uh, coverage with, uh, you know, a headline I think that grabbed a lot of people, particularly in politics, with most expensive midterms ever. Uh, let, let's talk about that. Not just It's not just members raising money hand over fist, like some of the folks we've mentioned here uh, on this uh, webinar, but the super PACs, uh, which are, are uh, just raring to go. Well, and it's a it's an off year for the presidential cycle. So if you're a big donor, you don't have any presidential candidates to send your or you know not candidates so much, but super PACs that um, back presidential candidates. So you've got you know you got to focus on the midterms. You got to focus on the congressional, um, House and Senate candidates. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that each midterm election will probably be the most expensive ever each time we hit the new one. Um, but this is certainly lining up to be uh, the most expensive midterm yet. And we're seeing, you know, just huge fundraising by super PACs on both sides of the aisle. They play really big roles um, in, in these races because, you know, they can come in, they can drop, you know, millions of dollars and, and really kind of upend a race. Uh, you know, usually these super PACs come in with negative ads that allows the candidates to, you know, put on the biographical, the more positive kind of um, TV and digital spots. So, you you know, the, these guys, these super PACs are kind of the bad guys, I guess, if you will. But uh, they can um, really, in terms of uh, expanding the map, 
you know, they can they can help bring online races that maybe were on the periphery because they can just throw money into into them and it can be a surprise. I think they they tend to keep some of their um their spending, you know, they they keep it secret until they've until they've uh actually bought the ad buys. Um one thing I'll note that's different about super PACs from the actual candidates um, candidates get a cheaper rate on TV. So the super PACs, they can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money, but they're also, they got to pay the higher rate when they uh, air TV ads and things like that. But, um, you know, donors seem to be uh, obviously very much engaged uh, on, the, on the Democratic and the Republican side. Um, you know, you have huge spending super PACs and other types of outside groups. Someone mentioned Emily's List, which has um, an affiliated super PAC, all these groups, um, they have sort of the, uh, the lobbying or educational component. Um, and then they have the, the super PAC or other, you know, uh, group that spends the money directly in elections. Um, so we're just expecting to see um, a ton of outside money flooding into these uh, pivotal races. And, you know, one one of the things I was struck by, too, is, that, you know, one of the issues that has begun to sort of define um, how, you know, how people are framing their arguments. Uh, it certainly animated uh, the post-presidential uh, life of Donald Trump is election integrity, voter fraud, voter suppression, depending on where you are on the issue. Um, you know, Democrats have made this a policy priority. Uh, in, in the House and Senate, you know, trying to pass legislation that's been blocked in the Senate uh, repeatedly. And, you know, this this is coming off of, you know, a, a rather uh, brutal cycle in 2020 uh, where the former president uh, made uh, claims about voter fraud that um, did not uh, bear any evidence, uh, but still it stuck with a lot of people. Uh, there have been changes at the state level. Uh, and we have groups that are spending and trying to animate voters on both sides of the aisle about this issue. Um, are, are, you, are some of the sources you're talking to, are they worried that we're going to get into a situation where in 2022, the whoever wins, uh, and if it's close, we might not know who controls the majority and say the Senate, uh, and, and the other side is just simply not accepting the result? Yeah, so I think this is a really, this is kind of the question um, of the midterms because these 2022 elections um, really will kind of be the first big test of our election system since 2020. And what has become known as kind of Trump's big lie in the, you know, there's, it's not, um, you know, the, he says that the election was stolen from him. Uh, and there's not evidence of that. And so it has become known in the advocacy groups as a big lie. And the way that they sort of um, explain it is that this is, is metastasizing um, on the Republican side to some degree, where you have people who, who doubt and question the validity of the 2020 election. Now, will that um, sort of transfer into 2022? And I think there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll just make a couple of points. The people who question the validity of the 2020 presidential election do not tend to question the validity of the 2020 House races, which as Stephanie and you just pointed out, Democrats lost seats and Republicans picked up. So 
you know, you kind of wonder, is some of this kind of a wink to Trump? They don't want to take him on directly, but do they really believe that there was a lot of widespread voter fraud? They don't ever talk about it in the, in the context of those House races. So it's a little unknown. And, a, and an election expert talked to me recently and said, you know, we, we had 147 Republicans, House and Senate, who voted against certifying the 2020 presidential results for President Biden. But it didn't really matter because that, that you know they were in the minority. That vote didn't um, you know they, they it was kind of a, uh, a it could be a messaging vote for them. So if it was really on the line, would they really do that again? Um, if their vote totally mattered, again, it's unknown. Um, but there are some signs to be optimistic that voters' confidence in the electoral system is strong. We've had high turnout in the New, um, the New Jersey and the Virginia gubernatorial um, and their uh, local legislative elections. You also had people concede. You know, in Virginia, there was some whispers. A lot of people I talked to um, were saying, you know, we're really watching for, uh, you know, is there going to be uh, somebody saying that this election was stolen or there was widespread fraud? Is somebody not going to concede? That was a non-issue. Uh, you know, there was there, there just you didn't hear anything about that. And even in New Jersey, where the where the Republican candidate he took, uh, I think it was something like nine days to concede. But even as he was reluctant to concede, he said, "You know, I'm not saying anything. You know, bad happened here. I, you know, I, this is going to be a, a fully fair election." Uh, he just wanted to, you know, sort of count all the votes. Same thing in California with the recall. Again, there was no sort of, oh, this was fraudulent. So we've had, you know, three really strong examples of things being pretty much the way you would expect. Um, but there is some concern about some of the rhetoric uh, that continues, particularly on the Republican side. Uh, former President Trump has kind of taken two paths. Right before the Virginia gubernatorial uh, election, he said, you know, everyone needs to get out and vote to beat the margin of fraud or something. He had kind of a, a voter uh, get out the vote message. But before that, he had said that he didn't think his voters were going to show up at the midterms until his, you know, until he'd been reinstated, I guess, or something. So, you know, you've, we don't know. This is one of those big unknowns. What is Trump going to do? What is his messaging going to be? Are his voters going to listen to it? Um, and on the Democratic side, you know, they're in trying to, um, get these bills across the Senate finish line, the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act is a voting rights uh, bill. There's a lot of rhetoric on the Democratic side about rigged elections, the system is rigged, and um, you know, saying that there's a lot of voter suppression being set up in some of these states where they have uh, changed their voting rules, places like Georgia. Um, you know, I think there is some cause for concern, you know, is there going to be, is there going to be sort of widespread uh, loss of faith in our democracy? Um, I think that's, it remains to be seen and, and we'll be uh, staying tuned into, you know, not just 2022, but into 2024 as well.